Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Hannah Fry is a mathematician, author, lecturer, presenter, and public speaker. She's a professor in Mathematics of Cities at UCL and hosts the BBC Radio 4 show, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. Today, I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, this is all about letter writing. Are you much of a letter writer? I am, actually. I often don't send them, though. I don't know. I just get in a bit of a tangle sometimes in my mind about things. And I find the best way to work out what is what I actually want to say is by writing a letter. So I don't start off with like, dear so-and-so, but it's more just like really kind of clearly getting my thoughts in order. I find it so helpful. And then I don't send it. I just, it like means that I'm more able to have a conversation about things later. Yeah, me too. I do it all the time. Do you? When you get cross with people? When, I, when I'm cross with people, especially, I just wrote a very cross letter this morning, actually, which I did send. Often, like if I'm hating my job or in the past or not necessarily my current job, although I've definitely written that letter, often I'll write a resignation letter to get my head into thinking about what's wrong. Or if I've got to say something to one of my friends that I find really hard, I'll write it as a letter in notes or I'll write it out because, and then I can deal with it in my head. I think it's almost like you can get over the real emotional struggle of working out what's wrong and then you can just actually have a conversation with somebody and like meet them as a person yeah exactly I think it's just much easier when I was younger when I was a teenager I think there were a couple of times where I sent the letter and then I quickly realized that it's a bad idea (laughs) never do that I would not have ever maintained employment if I'd sent the letter (laughs) I, I would have resigned from every single job I'd have no house have a blue plaque on. Um, Divorce 15 times. Yeah, I just, exactly. It's funny, actually, I've never actually written an angry letter to my husband that I haven't sent. Uh, I've written um, angry text messages that I did send. Yeah, that's true, actually. I haven't either. I haven't either. Yeah, don't do it to him. But that's that's a completely different level of a relationship, isn't it? He's there to deal with the messy, like... Actually, I'm not going to rehearse this before I say it to you. You're getting it with all of the rubbish involved as well. 
Yes, that's his job. Absolutely. Somebody once, when I was first elected, said to me, what does your husband do? Um, so you get this question a lot. And I just said, he just loves me. That's such a good response. That is such a good response. Yeah, but what does he do? It's like he does that all day long. He would question that, he would say, about 30% of the day. Why he spends loving you. Yeah, and 100% <laughs> of the days when I'm not there is the time that he spends <laughs> loving me. Because obviously we don't live together most of the week. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that I'm not alone in this and that you do this as well. Do you have any letters of real note from somebody really meaningful? Yeah, I do actually. And I, and I keep them maybe in a slightly hoardy way, but I think that there are times when only a letter will do. So um, I was quite sick last year. I had cervical cancer last year and there was a point where lots of people, like luckily I kind of got away with it and everything's fine now, but there was a point where people were sending flowers and people were sending chocolates and all of this. And anyone sort of who I spoke to, I said, please don't send me any of that stuff. I don't want any of it. Just write me a letter. Because I think when you are like in that moment of absolute crisis, the thing that you need the most, the thing that you crave the most is human connection. I think especially when you're in the pandemic and you can't be close to people and you can't, you know, physically touch them and cuddle them. I think that like the emotional connection that I got from those letters that I was sent in that time were just so powerful. I'll never, never throw them away. Every, you know, every now and then I sort of get them out and have a look at them. I think there's nothing quite like a letter in those moments. Yeah. And it's a bit like, you know, especially when people are ill, like people will say the thing that they want to say. It's a, it's a sort of dreadful curse of our um, society that we don't say the, you know, the things that we want to say to people. Apart from like weddings. I mean, I would like to have another wedding just so I could make lavish speeches about my friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't get that opportunity to make lavish speeches about my mates. And like loads of them, I got married really young and loads of them I wasn't particularly good mates with at the time. So they weren't at my wedding. And so I, I really, I mean, I, I like my husband. I mean, I'd marry him again, but I just really want the opportunity. So maybe I, I should just write them all lavish letters. They'd be a bit like, are you all right? So if, <laughs> what are you doing? I think that's interesting though, because actually a speech in a lot of ways, that is kind of like a, a letter. Later this summer, I'm going to be best man for my best friend's <laughs> wedding. Um, he's marrying this absolutely gorgeous girl. Like I'm super, super happy for him. We've been really, really close friends for a really long time. And I'm best man at his wedding. It's very modern, let's say. But I'm so excited about writing that best man speech because partly I'll get to rib him and it'll be great fun. But also for exactly the things that you're saying, I get to say all of the things that you think, but just don't have the opportunity to voice them out loud. Also, I make speeches all the time. So I write letters to my constituents via the medium of speech making all the time. And it means the world to the people that like today. In fact, I will read out the names of all the women who've been killed. Uh, I do it every year and I'm doing it today. And it is like a love letter to those people's families. It is, and that's the way I perceive it as like, you know, the sort of, it's really speech making. And, and most people don't make many speeches in their life. Obviously I do it literally every 15 seconds, but yeah, it is essentially writing 
a letter to somebody. Yeah, it's a very profound moment. It's a very profound moment getting to give a speech at, at somebody's wedding or at somebody's funeral. When I was a kid, me and my sister wrote to the Queen. Yeah, me and my sister wrote a letter to the Queen when we were kids and we asked her if we could be princesses for the day. And we got a response. Oh my God. Was it actually yeah. from her? Or no, it's from, from her... one of her ladies in waiting. Ladies in waiting. But they it was are still... just letter writers, aren't they? They're just letter writers, <laughs> the ladies in waiting. I they thought was... that they like dressed her and things, but they just write letters back to children who want to be princesses. I did once receive one letter actually that's um it's one that really stands out for me because I'm sure I'm sure you get tons of letters from people especially like from young girls who talk about what an influence you have on them and I'm really lucky that I get you know I get a, a reasonable number of those too but there was one that I got that really stands out for me above all the others Okay, so a few years ago, I gave the graduation ceremony speech, right, at my university. And the thing is, it's sort of one of those things where you go up, you say something like powerful and inspirational, and then you go home, right? And no one's there for you. No one cares what you have to say. It's just like, you know, exactly. Say something powerful and off you go. But the thing is, is that I really thought a lot about this speech because I think it's kind of it's kind of unusual even when you do a lot of public speaking it's kind of unusual to have that moment of like okay well what would I say to myself when I was younger and I spent a long time thinking about it um, and ended up saying something about uh, you know accepting that failure is part of success and about having resilience to, to failure and about like not stressing about having like a big life plan but actually just being you know, micro ambitious, just caring about the next thing that's in front of you and saying yes to opportunities. It was kind of one of those speeches. Anyway, I sort of finished the day and didn't think anything of it. And then about three and a half years later, I got this letter from someone completely out of the blue in the middle of the summer. And it was from this girl called Emma. And she said that she had been there on that day. She was with her boyfriend who was graduating. And at that time, she'd had to drop out of university because she was having really serious depression and anxiety. And she just like had a really awful time. She just hadn't been able to do it. And she was like at kind of this real low. And she went along to her boyfriend's graduation ceremony. And that she said that the things that I said in that speech just like helped to kind of flick a switch in her mind and mean that she wanted to go back and decided that she wanted to go and finish her degree. So she sent me an email on her graduation day. I can't tell you how much it meant to me because I think you just don't realise sometimes like the impacts that your actions have. And so many years later... Not at all. People have no idea of the impact they're making on people's lives, especially like I found talking to people on this podcast is people will say, like, they'll say, oh, this person totally changed my life, but they've got absolutely no idea. And then it just made me think, God, I'm just walking through life changing people's lives and not having any idea about it. Hopefully for the better. Yeah. Sometimes I hope for the worst, but, um, but the, yeah, you know, like just, like you have no idea. Nobody thinks of themselves as maybe the Dalai Lama does. I mean, <laughs> but nobody like thinks. He's got a good them. reason to. Yeah. To be fair. Thinks of themselves as like being like ridiculously enlightened and insightful. You just, you just saying things. You just like, you just write something down and, and one day somebody will send it back to you. Like, in script as if it was the most important thing that has ever been said. I think I don't even remember saying that. that I find that very strange, actually. Every now and then someone will like <laughs> from take something from one of my books or one of my articles or something or one of my um, talks and like put it in quotes as though it's like a quote and it's like, it's not a quote. It's just something I said. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like we're all Winston Churchill or Dorothy Parker. It wasn't like uh, I had an amazing quip one day, like Oscar Wilde. That is a lovely story about that woman. What a lovely story. Yeah, it's very sweet. That you changed her life. Yeah, but I think in a lot of ways, actually, it wasn't a one-way thing because I think that her email to me just happened to come at a time. It was between me having you know, two children. And I think that every woman who's like had, you know, has gone through sort of the physical changes of maternity and like an early motherhood, it's like your confidence is just, it really like knocks your confidence a lot. It was really a two-way thing. Her response to me ended up like actually giving me this great big boost. And, you know, she said this three, four years ago, and I still think about it every now and then. So. How brilliant. You should Clip some of it and make it into quotes. Like with calligraphy. <laughs> Do it in calligraphy. <laughs> that is a great idea. So I have asked you to think about uh, three different people. So the first one, I'm going to ask you to talk about who you would send a letter to. Uh, and that is somebody who means the world to you. So I am going to go for my husband, but <gasps> I'm so pleased. No one ever goes for their husband. Are they not? Oh, Everybody they goes for their moms. Oh. Moms are, are highly lauded, which I'm, I'm pleased about that. Everybody's got nice moms, but everyone says, I know everyone says it, but my mom's the best, but no one ever says, I know everyone says it, but my husband's the best. And so I, I'm, I'm glad to hear husbands getting a look in. Well, okay. I just assume that, that like everyone would be like, obviously the person I decided to spend my life with is the one. <laughs> like, no, I could have chosen a few different. I could have chosen my mom. I could have chosen my children. But I, but I thought actually, and it was interesting what you said earlier about how someone, when people ask you what does your husband do, and you say he just loves me one hundred percent of the time. So I think that I'm in actually quite a similar situation because I met him when I was like this really dorky PhD student, right? Like total full on nerd. Like I'd never done anything so much as like stand up in front of 30 people before, just incapable of holding a normal conversation, like bad clothes, bad hair. Mm. I mean, I've never had bad hair, but um, (laughs) the thing is, is that, so everything that I have like done and everything that I've become has only ever been since I met him. And now when we go out, you know, if we like go to dinner or something and people are like, oh, what do you do for a job to him? He's a stay at home dad, right? He like takes care of the household. He does absolutely everything at home. And I think that people see it as though it's like, it's my achievements and then he's there, but it's just totally, totally not, right? And actually it's like, he is the silent partner in a joint venture, And I think that actually often people, when they see women who have managed to, I don't know, like buck the trend or like uh, who've managed to sort of make a name for themselves, I think people are often really kind of curious as to how it's possible. And I think we're often not honest about the way that it is possible because the way that it's possible for me is that I don't have to do any of the, you know, any of the emotional labor, any of the like household labor All of it is completely taken care of by somebody else so that I can be free to just focus on this and, you know, loving my family. Yeah, I I agree totally. I when we moved out of uh, the house we'd lived in for 10 years, I literally like the the movers were trying to take something around the back and I had to say to Tom, how do you open the back gate? And he was like, we've lived here for 10 years. (laughs) I was like, sorry. 
I just never took out the bins or did anything around that. <laughs> like, so, yeah. like, I'm like, where's the dustpan and brush? Where do we keep the dustpan and brush? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. My husband is entirely the same. And once somebody came up to him and said to him, uh, somebody from the Labour Party said, we know that, you know, we wouldn't be able to, you know, she wouldn't be able to be brilliant without you behind her. And my husband said, actually, my wife's brilliant all by herself, which I was very, very proud of him for saying, but it's just not true. <laughs> I'm not brilliant without him being sort of light touch about everything. Yeah. I, I really think that's true of quite a lot of women who end up in this sort of position, like other people who are a similar position, you know, people, academics on TV, at least two of them that I know are in exactly the same position where like the husband is a stay at home dad. Another one who isn't in that position, she has two nannies. Two nannies. I mean, that's right? the truth of it, isn't it? Yeah. Like when celebrities are, I remember, I can't remember which celebrity it was, but when they said, Oh, how do you cope with them? Um, like, you know, your children and your movies and this, that, and the other. And she was like, I've got staff. Like, you know, she was like, I, I've got somebody who does my makeup and three people who look after my children on a rotor. And I was just like, Thank you for saying that. She's like, I have Botox. And like, you know, like the reason I look this way is because people make me look this way. And the reason that I can have my children on set with me is because I've got three people who look after them. Like, why do we pretend to be superheroes? I know. I know. Why do we pretend? Why do we pretend? Because looking after children is really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. It's ridiculously hard. Let me add to that though, because I think like I've sort of made it out as though in a way as though it's like this, this, it's all been very, very easy and like sort of just happened upon the only man in Britain who was like (laughs) perfectly house trained and like wonderful at taking care of children and like didn't mind, you know, taking a backseat to my career. Right. Not the case. Right. I think like there was certainly a lot of the sort of thinking that looking after a child is just making sure that they don't die during the day. And like, actually there's quite a lot more to it than that. I do just think about friends of mine. And also when you read a lot of, you know, like feminist literature about sort of just the inequality of uh, unpaid labor. And I really, I'm just so grateful that I managed to find somebody who's as much as a feminist as I am. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The unpaid labour thing, the productivity of women in our country because of three trillion pounds or something of unpaid labour that we do. We do unpaid labour in everything. We do the unpaid labour of keeping ourselves safe. The entire welfare system <laughs> is propped up by the idea that women will give up their jobs at one end of their life or another. Just ridiculous how much labour we're meant to give away for free. And even down to like our jobs, my my husband does work. He worked a shift pattern when our children were little. So he worked nights on a four on, four off shift pattern, which changed every week. I needed you to help me do the logistics of the job care and work out like in six weeks time, which day would he be on, on or off? It was a logistical nightmare. Any overtime that he did as a working in a sort, he was a lift engineer working in a sort of male environment. He was like, I put my tools down at five o'clock and if they want me to work a second longer, you know, I get call out rates, on call rates. Whereas you're in a refuge it's half past five on a Friday. You're sewing curtains because there's going to be somebody new coming tomorrow and the curtains have been pulled there. It's just like, it's absolutely like the amount of free labour women are expected to do that in organised men's labour is just not required of them. Yeah. 
Totally. But it's not only just, it's, it's not only just that there's an expectation that women do it. It's almost like if you buck the trend, if you don't do that unpaid labor, then actually you're seen as though you're not a team player. Anyway, there was one study that just, I came across and it just made me quite cross, okay? made me quite angry. And essentially it was, it was looking at people in a workplace and they set it up, they set up this experiment where essentially they had like a work meeting that people needed to stay late to prepare for. And then they looked at how favorable people who decided to stay or decided not to stay were looked on by their peers. And and okay, it's not going to be a great surprise. Obviously, if the men stayed late, they were seen as much more favourable than the women. Um, and if they both decided not to stay, the women were seen as much more unfavourable than the men. But the thing that was really extraordinary about it was like the size of these differences. So essentially, if a, um, a man stayed, right, he'd be seen as like 15% more favourable. And, you know, it didn't really make a difference if he, if he didn't stay or not. For a woman, she was seen as so unfavourable if she didn't stay. Essentially, she she had to stay late and do more just to be seen at the same level as a man who didn't stay. And it's like, what, how are we supposed to win here? You know, how are we supposed to win when we have to do so much more just to be seen as equivalent? It's just so infuriating that there's a data study, isn't there, that if a woman speaks for like 5% of a meeting, the men in the room say that she spoke for over 50% of the time, like she was just going on. It's just like, she just said, well, yeah. can I have a coffee? And like, <laughs> she dominated the entire meeting. What is your husband's name? He's called Phil. Phil. Oh, he could have married my husband and then he would have been called Phil Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> Opportunity, miss. It's a total opportunity, miss. (laughs) And how long have you been married to him? So we've been together for 12 years and married almost nine. Okay, so coming up to 10, you can have that second wedding to... uh, With the speeches. With the lavish speeches. Because your life does change after you get married. Like, you're different friends with different people. Like, you... You should get to have a wedding every 10 years, I think. I think you should. I think you should. Unfortunately, we are at the baby Geddon stage of life in the sense that all of our friends have had babies and everyone just falls away. I think think they come back. We're sort of, our children are just a tiny bit older than my friend's children. So we're like out of the sort of survival phase um, and into actually being able to enjoy life a little bit more again. But I think if we had a wedding, there'd be about three people turning (laughs) up. How many children have you got? Two. And how old are they? They are five and almost three. Okay, you are just through it. You're just through the very worst. Just through the worst of it, yeah. Yeah, I read a book for the first time when my youngest was three and a half and I haven't read a book for seven years. Lordy. Mm. I've written three since then, but um, but yeah, that I remember like being on holiday and reading a book and thinking, oh my God, this is it. This is it. I've read a book. That's that's about, on holiday and reading a book. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'm still well, not quite there yet. Yeah, you you're you're about to get there though. Don't have any more children. Ah uh, <laughs> I can't, unfortunately. I can't. Cancer put pay to that, unfortunately. Oh uh, me but, too. Yeah, so I only had part of my cervix removed and I had a baby afterwards. Did you have cervical cancer as well? I don't think I knew that. Well, when I was um pregnant with my first baby. I had squamous cell dysgariosis. Mm, mm. It's, like, it's like these words that you can I learn know, because you had it. Them. You have to just say it over and over. I couldn't spell it, but squamous cell dysgariosis. And because I was pregnant when they found out, 
uh, they had to leave it because your body is an incubator whilst you are pregnant. They were like, it will advance to 10 years by the point at which. So at the, for when I was first pregnant, they told me that I should have an abortion with my uh, first baby. The doctor said to me that I should consider having an abortion so that I could have the treatment straight away because otherwise it would uh, cause me to be very ill. But I was told that I'd never be able to have kids. So I said, no, my mom was like, but you're my baby. Don't be, a, don't be an idiot. But I I'm an idiot. So I had Harry and then immediately after I had him, I had to have all of the treatment and to have parts of my cervix removed and everything. But I've had a baby since then. Had, had, did it actually turn cancerous or was it still at the like? Yeah, I think it had by the point that they removed it, but I didn't have any other treatment. I didn't have like chemo or anything like that. Like I said, I had a newborn baby. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, 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 Anything could have happened and I haven't got a bloody clue. But I had another baby naturally afterwards. But obviously, in your case, that might not be the case. No, unfortunately, they um, they had to take out about a third of my abdomen by the time they found it, unfortunately. But um, there we go. Hey-ho. Well, anyway, I, I feel that in this case, my advice, don't have another baby, is a good one. <laughs> it still stands. It still stands. It still stands. So, your husband, how would you sign off a letter to your lovely husband? I'm afraid that's private, Jess. <laughs> I hope it's sexy. No, I, oh, non-stop. Non-bloody stop. <laughs> um, no, I think I would say, I think I would just say a really heartfelt thank you for being the silent support in our joint adventure. So the second person I asked you to think about was somebody who is no longer with us or with you. So who would that person be? Okay, so I think that um, for this one, I'm going to go for my maths teacher at school. So she was called Mrs. Andrews and uh, I had her for seven full years, the whole way through secondary school. And she was just really amazing at like spotting somebody's interest in a subject and just nurturing it and creating an environment where they just felt like they had the total freedom to enjoy something. So she um, very sadly died from cancer a few years after I left school. And I never really got to go back and talk to her and go back and meet her after I'd sort of, you know, got my PhD and become a maths professor and so on. So partly it's about that. It's sort of like, I feel a bit sad that I never got to tell her how important she was. But I also think that, um, I think that the environment that she created was, was so fundamental. And the reason why I think that is that a couple of years ago, I was doing this project where I went round and I spoke to all the people who were doing PhDs in maths in London, right? And, you know, all of the boys and girls and like sat down and talked to them about it. And like, well, for starters, they all had one thing in common, which is that they all had one teacher who had like really nurtured their talent. I thought that was really amazing that literally all of them had one. But the other thing that I really noticed about them was that there was this really distinct difference between the way that the girls and the way that the boys felt about themselves and the subject. Because the thing is, is that maths is like really heavily male dominated, right? So I mean, in terms of maths professors in the UK, 94% of them are male, right? So it's very, very heavily male-dominated. And the thing is, is that all of the girls, as they're growing up, all of them, every time that they would say to somebody, oh, I'm a mathematician, people would react and be like, oh my gosh, you're... 
Oh, okay. That's so weird. Like you're a mathematician. That's so strange. I can't believe you're doing this. Whereas the boys, when they would say I'm a mathematician as they're growing up, people are like, oh, wow, you must be really clever, right? And then when it gets hard, which it really does, right? Maths PhDs are, are, are you know, they're very difficult. Maths die level. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's all hard. hard. It's all quite hard. But when it gets really, really hard, what ends up happening is that all of those conversations that the people have had over the course of their life end up changing how they feel about themselves. So pretty much universally, all of the girls, when it got really difficult, they'd been told their whole lives that it was strange that they were the ones who were doing the subject. So they think that it automatically that they're the ones that are the problem. So they're always like, it's really hard and it's because I don't belong here. It's really hard because it's me, I'm the problem. Whereas all the boys who had had like all of that resilience built up over years and years and years of like people saying they were clever and you know building their confidence when it gets really hard so noticeable talking to these PhD students when it gets really hard all the boys were like well it's hard because it's it's a maths PhD of course it's hard I'm really clever and I know if I work hard enough I'll get through it it's fine and I just thought a lot about Miss Andrews when that happened because the thing is she wasn't like this kind of loud or bolshy or even really like she wasn't even a particularly confident confident mathematician, right? She was just somebody who very quietly and calmly just allowed space for you to have your own enjoyment with this subject, really sort of helping you find this place, which is like, I like to think of maths as sort of a portal to the playground for the soul. And I think that that's what she, it's like, it's this private connection that you have with the subject. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It doesn't matter what anyone else is shouting about. It's like, it's just about you and the subject and nothing else is important. I'm just really, I, I wish I'd had the opportunity to tell her how important that was. Oh, she sounds like an amazing teacher and, you know, she would have had to have been teaching you and making you feel like that in a classroom where lots of kids were not feeling definitely in maths. Like, you know, you're in groups of people, some of whom will, will be massively excelling at it and some of whom who find it really, really tricky. Certainly as you get, you know, you sort of get older at school and so to be able to be a teacher and you know I just really hope that teachers these days feel and I'm afraid to say I don't think they do feel that they have that bandwidth to be able to do that to both help the kids who find it difficult and really nurture the kids that um, have an aptitude and a love for it. I think with maths for me, and this is because I got to GCSE level maths, I did get an A star, however, I'd like to say. And that was entirely down. I was one of the kids dicking about in the class, uh, entirely down to the fact that my maths teacher was brilliant um, and managed to get me through it. And my son is studying A level maths. And when I look at it, I'm like, what the hell? Like the difference between GCSE and A-level maths, let it's alone. It's a different language, isn't it? My five-year-old, right, is like just starting to do maths lessons. And like when she comes home with these little textbooks and exercises and they're doing all these weird ways that I've never seen before, I am like, there's a little bit of me that's like, <gasps> what if I don't understand? <laughs> they're doing adding backwards. I'm like, you're doing it the wrong way, right? Start it. That's wrong. Don't on the left. I was like that. I just I cannot understand what is going on here. <laughs> it seems to take a lot longer, but it's just that the way the language, the way that I learned to do that language was completely different. So um also the way that we learned to do it led to 
an entire country of people who have maths anxiety. So I think probably it needed to change. Okay, that's made me feel slightly better. <laughs> so Mrs. Andrews, did she teach uh, until her retirement and then? No, so she, oh, actually, you know what? I don't actually know. Um, the one thing I do also remember about Mrs. Andrews, this is kind of how cool she was. She um, she had lost her two front teeth. So she had like a, a, a bridge in, a sort of fake thing. And if, if you were <laughs> either particularly good or particularly naughty, she would like take them out and sort of snap them at you. What a legend. Total legend. You know, like, we don't get characters like this anymore. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like characters of yesteryear. Like you're an academic and you're teaching people. You've got to come up with a quirk. You, you've got to. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to. You are going to have to like make some really weird thing so that people remember. You're going to have to come up with something. The way you pronounce, like you will always remember like the lecturers that you had that like pronounce things wrong or like you're going to have to come up with like a really weird quirk about the way you say something. I know it's true. Like Mikrowave. Micro, like Mikrowave. Exactly. I did have one lecturer. I particularly remember this is at university and um, he had a pointing stick, right? And pointing sticks were different colours. And he told us on the first day of term that there was a pattern to the colour that he chose and that he would give a prize to the person who worked out the pattern. And I genuinely tried. (laughs) Honestly, I've got no idea. But he would like really proudly get out of his bag, be like, what colour is it going to be today, everybody? It's blue. And we'd all be like, no idea. (laughs) I reckon he was winding you up. Surely to God. I think in the end it ended up being something about like whether Arsenal had won or not. It was something really Oh, uh, not Matsy. I wanted it to. I was literally like, right, how, you know, let me see if I can decode this in prime numbers. Like I'm going to run it through some linear algebra to see if I can formulate the, you know, <laughs> like the solution. And actually it's just been Arsenal. Oh, man. That is what a flex. What an absolute flex. <laughs> brilliant. I, I really like that lecturer. So <laughs> it's a shame Mrs. Andrews never got to see you become a maths professor. She must have known how much she meant to you. I think so. Her daughters are still around and I've thought about reaching out to them. But it's quite hard to, to find people who've got a surname like Andrews, isn't it? Yeah. I wish that was the same with Phillips because that's really common, but people seem to find me. I think you're quite prominent, Jess. <laughs> I think if you didn't oh, want to be found, you might be in the wrong career. God damn it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's really hard to find some, but yeah. The Andrews sisters is who you're the looking Andrews for. Andrews sisters, exactly. <laughs> Don't know either of their names, their first names. I mean, it's hopeless. They may or may not even be called Andrews anymore. It's like, I want someone who, no, actually, I don't know anything about them. <laughs> what was the name of your school? Presdales. Presdales. Mm. Or maybe somebody will listen and say, I know these people. What was Mrs. Andrews' first name? Did you know it? You don't know. It's, okay, in my head, I think it was Julie, but I think... <laughs> Julie Andrews. That's in your head. I think it's in my head. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Julie Andrews. <laughs> now Julie Andrews children are gonna get in touch with you. <laughs> Fine by me. <laughs> I'll have a chat with Matt about them about <laughs> chat with them about maths. <laughs> yeah, they'll love it. The maths of the sound of music. There must be some maths <laughs> in it. There must surely, be. surely yeah. somewhere. So how would you sign off your letter to Mrs. Andrews? I think that I would say, I think that she gave me a real gift and I would thank her for that. And I would say that 
even now I try and remember that when it comes to doing maths, you don't need to do it for anybody else for no other reason than your own enjoyment. I think that was a really important lesson. When I used to get stressed when I was a kid, I'd do long division. Did you? I'd like write really, really, really long ones and then just to try and work it out. That's quite weird. And I, I mean, yeah, that is quite weird. We'll be back after a short break. In the meantime, why not check out another podcast from the team behind yours sincerely? I'm here to tell you about our brand new podcast, Go Love Yourself. It's the show where we're working to love ourselves a little bit more. Yay! I'm Laura. I'm a body confidence and plus size fashion influencer. I was also on the Bake Off. You were? Why didn't you tell anybody? <laughs> and I'm Laura's best friend, Lauren. And we're going to be talking about everything from diet culture to dating, mental health to social media, and generally not caring about what people think. We've got new episodes out every Tuesday. Just search Go Love Yourself in your podcast app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the final letter I asked you to prepare was about somebody who doesn't know what an effect they've had on your life like you were to Emma. Yeah. Okay, so this one, there is an author called Simon Singh, and he wrote a book in the 90s called Fermat's Last Theorem. And Old what? Fermat's Last Theorem. Oh, oh my God, Jess, it's so good. <laughs> I can't say I've read it. Honestly, it's so good. And not just for learning people. So it's about this. Okay, just you're going to have to go with me for a second because initially it's not going to sound like it's good, but I promise that it is, okay? So it's about this guy who was called like the Prince of the Amateurs, right? So this mathematician in France, hundreds of years ago, and he like wrote all these little theorems, came up with all these little puzzles, put them on bits of paper, sort of, you know, like sent them out to other people. And it turns out he was like amazing. So loads of his ideas were like, holy hell, this guy has got some serious ideas. Anyway, after he died, they went through his house and they went through all the papers that he had in his house and they came across like one book 
that had like all of these little theorems in it. And one of them that he wrote down, he wrote this little equation and he said, I think that this is true and I can prove it, but the margin on this piece of paper is too small to write the proof. So, but I've got a, a marvellous proof for this, that this margin is too small to contain. And then people are like, oh my God, okay, if this is true. This is, this is like big, this is a big deal. This equation is a big deal. So they like hunted through his house. They pulled up all the floorboards. Nobody could find it. And then literally for hundreds of years, the best, most amazing people in the history of everything, like everyone had a go at this. I mean, I, I'm literally, mean like everyone all the like great minds and no one could solve this thing until in the 90s this guy called Andrew Wiles managed to do it but he is also like so this is a story about Andrew Wiles and his and his like love affair with this thing and I should tell you that the only way that he managed to solve it was by quite literally locking himself in an attic for seven years and thinking about nothing else and doing it all in secret. And it's, ama- it's ama- like this book is amazing. It's amazing. What a lunatic. <laughs> I once went to an art installation where somebody had got locked in a, it was like a ho- horror thing. Somebody had been locked in a, an attic and they'd written all horrible things on the wall. Was, was it, it maths? Yes. Was it maths? That it might have been. That just sounds like a fever dream. Okay, when I said he quite literally looked himself in the attic, I so meant he quite literally. Down to have Lou. <laughs> exactly. Lou breaks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Was so he anyway, funded to stay in this? Well, like, did he so have money? He had like been obsessed with this problem. He came across this problem when he was a little boy. And the thing about this this equation is that it's something that like you know even people who don't have GCSE maths could understand this equation. Um, so he found it when he was a little boy, and he'd like tried some some early things. And then he went off and became a professional mathematician and became a maths professor in America. And then once you're a maths professor in America. You can sort of do whatever you want. You want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> so he would like... The tenure thing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I'm basing this entirely on Ross from Friends. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a documentary. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so he, uh, yeah, he would just like occasionally publish a little paper, but everyone thought that he'd gone off the boil. And then he like appeared in Cambridge one day, gave this seminar and like put on the blackboard. I just get so excited whenever I think about it. <laughs> I'm going to get this book from my son and it's my husband. It's really good. They, it's they really are good. going to love this. This. Anyway, so the guy who wrote it, Simon Singh. Okay, I like. So actually, Mrs. Andrews gave me the book when I was about 15, and um, the guy who wrote it, Simon Singh, he's written loads of other books. And like, in fact, actually, my copy of I didn't do this deliberately. But my copy is right here, and you can you see how loved this thing is? Like, oh my god, the number of times I've read this book, I'm trying to tell you. Anyway, so I've read everything he's done more than once and then there was one occasion when I first met him I had like started doing little YouTube videos here and there and a couple of them had like gone uh, like medium viral and he ended up he had this new book out and like I guess you know when you write a book you have to like try and get people to talk about it so you sort of send it out to people Anyway, he like found me. I'd never spoken to him. He found me. I'd like watched some of my YouTube videos and to my office at, at UCL where I'm a professor, I got a copy of a book and a postcard from him. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. This is absolutely insane. I like, I literally was walking on air for about a week. Anyway, a little while later, I ended up giving a talk to some school kids and uh, he was one of the other people who was giving a talk that day. And so I went to like meet him and was like, play cool, play cool. Like, this is play cool. Uh, 
And then afterwards, after he'd given his talk, I was like sitting in the green room, just like chatting to him, trying to pretend to be normal. Like, what do you do with your hands? You know, like, oh, like I'm so like so self-conscious. And then he was telling me about something. He was telling me a story about the Enigma machine, which is in one of his books. And he was like explaining, he was being really kind because he was like, oh, you know, like maybe this person doesn't know this. And he was sort of explaining how it worked and like the detailed sort of mathematics of it. And in my head, I was like, I know, because I've read every word you've ever written <laughs> 15 times. Um, but no, I didn't, uh, I didn't say that. You didn't I didn't say. Cool. Uh, I didn't say. I played it cool. I'm like, I, I actually know him pretty well now. <laughs> like I've been for a drink with him, like all of this stuff. And I think, that I think that he knows that I read the book when I was younger. I don't think he knows quite the impact that it had on me. The obsessive impact yeah. of Simon. Obsessive? Come on. <laughs> I mean, actually, yes. <laughs> the uh, that is that is like it's funny. I meet lots of celebrities and and people of note and royalty and, and, and otherwise, um, but it is like it's often the the people who make me feel the most. The person who I've had, like, absolutely, completely, like, didn't know how to talk to them was John Curtis, you know, the man who does the data on election night. Oh, he's so I, cool. I, I was like, when I met him, I didn't know how to behave. I was just like, oh, my God, I love you, John Curtis. <laughs> like... Like I was, I was less like that with Idris Elba than I was I with John Curtis. I, I was agree. just like, oh my god, I've been watching you all my life talking about the data of elections, and and like you're just like you mean the world to me, and you have no idea that that you this geeky man like that I think this way about you. Yeah, he's the most starstruck I've ever been. I think I completely Curtis. agree. I completely agree with you. The thing about actors, I mean, and I think that actors are very impressive, right? And like some of them I like a lot. But ultimately they are just sort of saying words that other people have people written, have written. Them, doing yeah. what other people have told them to do, right? Like I mean their interpretation of it is is impressive and so on. But like I think that somebody who manages to, I don't know, like create something from nothing and spin a story that can literally, I mean, I wonder whether I would have ended up being a mathematician if it wasn't for that book. I don't, I don't know whether I would have done, but you know, like, and, and I'm not the only one, like I think a lot of people who ended up in this field found that book to be such a big driver for how they ended up um, seeing themselves in the subject. I'm going to buy it for my uh, maths A-level son and get him to read it. He's going to read it. Heard of it? He's probably read it already. He's, He's probably, probably read it already. Has. He probably has. I mean, my husband will be like, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, I'll be like, I've never heard of it. I do that all the time. I'm like, have you heard of this thing called the metaverse? My husband's like, what's wrong with you? It's like you live in an actual, like, you know, ivory tower. It's like, of course. Still there. You've got <laughs> yeah. uh, Buller Beacons in your tower. Yeah, Belisha Beacons. You. Um, I was just like, I'm, I'm constantly discovering things that he's like, yep, yeah, I read that in 1987. I'm not cool. Maybe that's so um, not cool. 30% of the day loving you. Yeah. 15% reading yeah. the stuff that you don't yeah. read. <laughs> that I don't know, so that he can then damn me on it. Uh, he met a friend of mine who is a journalist at The Guardian once. And they spent the entire time talking over this long read piece about printers and how printers function. I was like that. I can't believe you've both read this thing and that you're now talking about like the engineering of printer ink. Oh, that sounds quite interesting. Can you remember who wrote it? I'm going to look it up. <laughs> I, I will find out for you. 
<laughs> he then had a counter one that was also about lifts that he then sent to her. They now have like a relationship where they send each other like geeky long reads about really dull things. His favourite YouTube thing at the moment is the history of fridges, which is my... <laughs> Which is made. Oh, actually, is quite cool. The history of fridges. Yeah, I mean, apparently, it's made by the man who used to present Tomorrow's World, mm. uh, and it's from like 1975. This history of fridges. It's 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 made me watch it twice. Also, the history of other appliances also available. It's not connections, is it? Is that what it's called? Uh, it might be called Connections. Yeah, the man from Tomorrow's World. In London, there's that place where they've made automatons. Like you can go and look at the crazy automatons. We go there regularly when my husband is in London. I'm married to a geek. I'm married to a geek who knows where the dustpan and brush is. Seriously, sounds absolutely perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, Simon Singh, how would you sign off a letter to him? Oh, I think I'd just write the same that he wrote in that first postcard to me when he was basically trying to get me to talk about his book. But it meant much more to me than that, which is cheerio. <laughs> oh, that makes me like Simon Singh even more. <laughs> it's yeah. very cool. My dad refers to things as a pullover or a blouse rather than like a, a top. Like, I just love that sort of old, oldie language. Cheerio. Um, so Simon said, I'm going to look out for Simon Singh's books. And I think that, you know, I hope he's going to listen and hear that you were covering up legions of excitement I hope he doesn't I hope he doesn't because then I'll never be able to look him in the face again (laughs) well it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today Hannah about Phil Mrs Andrews and Simon Singh and Ferment's Last Theorem which you know Ferment's Fermat Fermat I actually wrote it down Fermat's Last Theorem I'm going to go and read up about that and maybe find out more about American professors beyond (laughs) the knowledge of Ross from Friends. It's always good to leave a conversation with a reading list, right? (laughs) I mean, I I did this with Philippa Perry and she had like 19 books. I was like, okay, hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, I don't think I'm going to get through all these books. But yeah, so uh, one is better, although it does sound like maybe... Is it not heavy going, this book? No, no. Easy to read. You read it as a child. It's a thriller. It's a thriller. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm going to read it. Well, Hannah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Likewise. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends, telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.